0: Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See
2: website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooping Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. We're back. Hope everyone is well. And uh, I've never said that before, but I, I mean it. Hope everyone is well. And, uh, well, some news has sort of come through just today. The English Open is going to be in Milton Keynes. Now, I think that's really good news because the point is tickets are going on sale on Friday. So it's an opportunity for a venue that supported the tour, really was the main reason we had a tour, play behind closed doors, can now allow fans in. And I really hope people take the opportunity to go there. It'll be in uh, November, so there's a while yet. But that's good, isn't it? It's a good reward, I think, for them that they're getting a, a tournament with, with fans.
1: It'll now be strange for players to play in Milton Keynes with members of the public around. It'd be a totally alien feeling after spending so much time there playing behind closed doors. I do wonder if maybe there's an element of doing that so that if things take a turn for the worse, they can still have it in the same venue and revert to the bubble. But hopefully it won't come to that.
2: Hopefully not. And also, um, speaking of World Snooker Tour, uh, the story today, that their Facebook uh, following has hit now over a million subscribers, which is twice that of the European Golf Tour. It's more than some Premier League teams. And what what was impressive about it? I mean, the number's impressive, because last year, it was something like 650,000 a year ago. So, I mean, they've grown at a massive rate. But the Mm -hmm. countries, the number one country is Pakistan. Mm. Pakistan, there's places like Myanmar, Iraq, Malaysia, all these sort of countries you don't necessarily associate with snooker big following. Morocco as well. Of course, Amin Amiri hasn't fared well on the tour, but he's definitely brought fans to the sport. So that's all good. And, you know, fair play to them. They've worked hard. And, uh, you know, that's good. It can only be good for the game, I guess.
1: Yeah. And Pakistan's a huge country. I mean, if that could be channeled in the right direction, that could be a huge breakthrough area for the sport. So, well, yeah, I th- great I, news. I,
2: I think John Parrott won a, I'm sure he won an invitation event in Pakistan. Yeah. I think it was called the Red and White Challenge. I think it was called the Red and White Challenge as yeah. well. I think he he beat Nigel Bond in the final, but uh, I remember he said it, was, uh, it was, wasn't where they played, wasn't the most sort of um, swish venue necessarily. But
1: I think, I think it was out in the middle of a field like, yeah. and well, well <laughs> away from anything else. And yeah. the building was up on stilts or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But, I mean, John seemed to win titles in pretty much every country where snooker has played, including well, Pakistan.
2: Yeah, we should maybe mention that. Oh, this wasn't on my notes, but, of course, it's 30 years since Parrot won the World Championship. And, yeah. Uh, and he had a reputation, you're quite right, for winning tournaments basically anywhere, not anywhere but Britain, because he won the World in UK and Britain. But if there was a tournament somewhere far off, he won the European Open in France, for example, first staging. He won the tournaments in Thailand, Dubai, all around Europe. One of the reasons, I know this, because I remember going to Thailand um, when when I started out at the WPBC. <laughs> And John Parrott... In Thailand, there are, there are attractions, you know, there's nightlife, there's places to go, things to see. John Parrott would have the crosswords from the British newspapers, the Times and the Telegraph, faxed to him. And be, he'd be off to bed early, you know, doing that while players are out doing other things, let's just say. So John... Mm-hmm took it basically took it seriously he didn't go on holiday when he went to these tournaments he, It was a job of work we know he's a family man he missed home so the way he got through that was just concentrate on this snooker so it's no great miracle i suppose no great surprise that he was so successful because he didn't treat foreign trips as a holiday he treated them
1: as work yeah and i remember him saying to me as well you, you can add to that actually the fact that He's, uh, when he when tournaments were on in the uk he was often distracted by uh, watching the racing maybe going mm-hmm. for a round of golf but you didn't have all that of course if you were on the other side of the world so that just added to it however breaking news yes. while you were talking there i just looked it up online he didn't actually win it <laughs> he it says here he was beaten in the final by nigel bond really oh I, well it's amazing we both thought he'd won it yeah, I don't know. I mean, that 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 could be wrong. Certainly, I, I remember him talking about it one day. I think he thought he'd won it. So. <laughs> I, I I don't know. So we'll have to look into that one. Okay. Well, speaking of which,
2: uh, last week, um, you you made a comment about. Can you think of any snooker players from Southampton? And mm. of course, and of course, the minute I stopped recording, I thought of Billy Castle, who's you know been on the touring, the championship champion. There's a big scene actually. it turns out in Southampton. Uh, Matt Hewitt got in contact. Um, to mention obviously Chandler's Ford the club there there's Jamie Wilson who's who got new on the tour there's a little scene there Connor Benzie so there's actually quite a thriving scene Tim Dunkley as well who is one of the coaches and and is mm. involved in junior snooker to sort of local newspaper reports mm. and uh, Neil Folds also mentioned Bernard Bennett Um, from wow. years ago I think was in the first pot black he's certainly one of the early professionals um, so it turns out Southampton is an absolute hotbed for snooker. So apologies to the, uh, to the
1: people down there, but uh, anyway, we put it right this week. There'll probably be an announcement next week that another, another event has been being played there because it seems every, every week now there's an announcement of a, a new tournament or venue. Well, yeah. And uh, the women's tour is they're, they're announcing their events. And, and
2: we talked last week about playing on for snookers and you sort of said you could see the logic in maybe sort of capping the number of snookers you can play for. I wasn't so sure, but, um, Matt got in contact to say, Matt Hewitt this is, to say that um, on the women's tour, because he's involved, I think he's a director of the of women's snooker, yeah. he said, uh, we brought a rule in a couple of years ago that if you need more than three snookers on the colours, the frame is over. We have a tight schedule of round-robin matches. Got to someone playing on 100 points behind on the final pink, which was the last straw. But, <laughs> well, was was Ronnie playing in a women's event? Well, it makes sense, because obviously, you know, it's just a fact the standard is lower, the frames are going to take longer. So that makes sense. Whether it would should apply in the professional game i'm still not convinced but i also fully accept that it can be very annoying as we talked last last week when you see someone coming back and you just know it's just basically wasting everybody's time this can, week can we, i,
1: can, yeah. I can, can i get a rewind there actually because Please again do. yeah i mean this this is basically what goes on while you're talking i'm, I'm looking up more information <laughs> here so bernard bennis who apparently yeah. died in 2002 at the age of 70 was a professional for 26 years his highest break in his whole career
2: Sixty three. Yeah, well it's a different time, isn't it? You know Yeah, it was no, it was
1: a different time. There was no it, there, there was no one to
2: learn from in those days really. You know, you, yeah. you sort of turned pro and, and you'd come out of a lot of those guys they'd come out of, you know, playing in obviously amateur snooker, but really the workplace as well. We know that, you know, Ray Ream was a minor and all those sort of leagues in those workplaces were where these players came from.
1: Well, actually, that was something that he was involved very heavily in, was organizing and promoting tournaments at a sort of local level. So he was perhaps better known for that than for his playing expertise. I think, I think he may, I'll probably look this up the next time you're talking. I think he was one of the, what was it, four or five players that Clive beat in professional competition. <laughs>
2: oh. Wow. There's a list. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess w- feel free to uh, to let us know the others. Um, Gods of Snooker finished this Ooh. week. I know a lot of people had already watched it on the iPlayer, but uh, obviously where you are, it went out on b Two
1: yeah. on Sunday. Uh, it was mainly about Jimmy White, the last edition. What what were your feelings overall? Well, one thing I, of of all the many positive things I would say about the series, the number one thing is they've clearly gone to great lengths to get as much good footage as they can. Mm-hmm. And there's some fantastic stuff in there, some of it very obscure, some of it less so, but still great to see. I mean, for example, regular listeners to the podcast will understand the appeal to us of the fact that in 2021 footage from the Mercantile Credit Classic was shown primetime Sunday night television. That's absolutely magnificent. But also there was a picture of Steve, Jimmy and Neil, who were the top three in the world at the time, and Stephen Hendry doing a promotion, promotional shoot for uh, the World Series. I actually remember the picture. And they're all wearing hats that are sort of seen as traditional mm-hmm. in some of the countries they were going to. Can you imagine the reaction to that being done now and all the talk about cultural appropriation and all the rest of it? Oh,
2: yeah. Well, Neil, well to this day, Neil Falls can't go to Mexico because he's wearing that to that big Mexican hat. But
1: Yeah, uh... yeah, yeah. yeah no, no. So, so yeah, different, different times. Um, but a few other things I was thinking as well. Jimmy was talking about 1981 when he lost in the first round to Steve 10-8. And he was talking about how Steve went on to win the championship that year. And it was as if he had it in his head that, well, if I would won that match, I might have gone on to be world champion as a teenager, and who knows what might have happened after that. And the thing is, he had a point, because it was a very different time back then. It was a bit like the way the winners of the second division would always be considered contenders to win the first division, the old league championship, the following season. In much the same way, in snooker, if you were coming out of the amateur game as one of the top amateurs, at that time you were considered as someone who could start winning the big professional events almost immediately. And of course, a lot of that came from the fact that Terry Griffiths had done exactly that by winning the world championship, just a couple of events into his pro career. So Jimmy was coming out on the circuit ready to win at the highest level. Indeed, he did win, I think, a couple of fairly big events in 1981 just after turning pro. So again, that's just something that was a different time. Now, you know, you don't expect anything remotely of that level of players for a few years when they come out on the circuit but also again they came back to Alex Higgins and you know some of the misconceptions that exist there's a narrative that I said this to you the other day we were talking about this it's a bit like when David Brent goes back to Wernham Hogg <laughs> in the Christmas special and he's told very politely by the new manager he can't just be dropping in for chats and bringing his dog with him and he says oh yeah because the regime don't like it man and people <laughs> sort of tried to portray that that was the story with Alex, that there was a a sort of crusty old establishment that were, you know, a bit concerned about Alex, a bit frightened of him. So they kept contriving ways to keep him down with disciplinaries and so on. I think anyone who followed the career of Alex Higgins, particularly off the table, will know that he actually got away with quite a bit of stuff. And there were quite a few things he could have been pulled up over that didn't happen. And the idea that people wanted to get him out of the game. I think it was the complete opposite. I think at times the establishment were maybe a bit lenient on him because they knew he was a big ratings pull. He was great at selling tickets for matches. And the last thing they wanted was to actually kick him out of the sport. So they went as far as they could without actually getting rid of him. And again, it's repeated this thing about how he was banned for five tournaments in 1987. It's one of those things that's technically true but misleading at the same time, because one of them was a billiards event in Belgium that there's no way he would have been playing in. And one of them was the Canadian masters and he wasn't ranked high enough to be in that. So even then these things are are, are slightly exaggerated, but one thing that it it really creates the impression is that after he made that speech uh, following his defeats to, to Steve James in 1990, that that was it. And actually he played on for several years after that. And they directly say in the program that it was the last time he played in the world championship at the crucible. Well, We know it was actually four years after that before he made his his swan song. So a few misconceptions there about Alex and the thing you alluded to as well. I think it's, you know, it's just very misleading to suggest that on the 31st of December 1989, everyone lost interest (laughs) in snooker and nothing interesting ever happened after that. Well, I mean, bizarre to see that on the BBC. who have continued to show all the Triple Crown events, Dave, and one or two others over the years. Uh, ever since then but having said all of that overall massive thumbs up for the series and I was a bit skeptical at the start thinking well what is there left to say they didn't actually maybe say that much that we didn't know about but I think for anyone who perhaps wasn't wouldn't be quite so intimately knowledgeable about that era it was actually a great way to learn about it and even the things we did know were told in interesting ways great interviews I thought I thought so many people spoke really well on it. It's great fun actually hearing Stephen Hendry talking about Ian Doyle and those Mm. of us who who would know both of them a bit and would understand about the relationship that they had uh, would have had a a real smile hearing them saying that. So overall, I thought it was absolutely excellent. And I just really hope that in sort of 10 or 20 years from now, a similar series is made about the current era, because I think there's just as much there to work with.
2: Well, I'll say two things about that. One is, I thought it was poor the way it ended not to... I mean, there's a great story there, actually, that the, the renegade manager of the 80s, Barry Hearn, ended up running the sport yeah, yeah. and revitalising the sport. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't see why they couldn't tell that story. It'd just reflect the way that, as a result of the 1980s, the circuit took off in the, in the way it did internationally. What's happening now is is linked very much to that era. The other thing I would say is, I know someone who worked on the series, and he, for several years, <laughs> tried to get a documentary... Commissioned by the BBC about Ronnie O'Sullivan, okay, who is a big star, no question mm. about it, and they wouldn't do it. So the fact that the BBC wouldn't do a documentary on Ronnie O'Sullivan, but would do one on the old days and a three-part series at that, I think that does tell you something. Now, obviously, the BBC and it's been much in the news in the last week. is a big organisation. There's lots of different kind of factions, lots of different sort of viewpoints about what pro, where programs should lead, but. I think it's quite telling that if they don't think a documentary on Ronnie O'Sullivan is something people would watch, we know they would watch it.
1: Absolutely. In fact, ITV4 did one. Um, Yeah, and it it was really good. I'll tell you what they did do, though. You might remember about 20 years ago, there was a series called, I think it was called Inside Sport. Gabby Logan presented it, and she interviewed someone each week. And one week, it was Ronnie. I think it may have been not long after he won the championship for the first time. And uh, he spoke brilliantly on it, actually. I'm not so sure you'd hear him be so kind of, you know, carefree in a situation like that nowadays. Maybe understandably, he's grown a bit more sceptical about the world. But uh, so I mean, I mean, at least they did do that. But of course, I mean, if there was a really good, in fact, it wouldn't even necessarily need to be a single program. Ronnie's life has been so fascinating and eventful, and his career has gone on so long. You could do another sort of three-part series out of it, and of course, people would watch it in, in huge numbers. I think get Mark Bashir to present it. Yeah,
2: I think the one on ITV Paul was made by a guy called Lewis Hurt, who is oh yeah, he's the main director of ITV Snooker's yeah. match coverage, and his big ambition, which has not yet happened, is to direct a 147. So whenever you're commentating and you've got Lewis in your ear, it, it gets to sort of five reds, five blacks. He literally starts to get excited. He thinks this is the moment. This is the moment when Mark Selby made his at the Champion of Champions. Someone else is directing, so Lewis is yet to get that. But uh, maybe well, is it going to be enough? Snook- there's going to be enough snooker on ITV4. Hopefully, he'll get it. Anyway, that's yeah. God's a snooker. I think everyone agreed it was, it, was, it was actually a great series, a few sort of nitpicks aside. But we're going to move on. We're going to look to the future, or possibly an alternative future, because I'm going to unveil now. We're going to get to emails later, but I'm going to unveil now my plan, my new plan for the ranking system. Oh, yes, this is the oh, exciting. Wow. Not that we've got time on our hands at the moment or anything, but this is
1: this is is really going to fit in with, you know, Judd's kind of recent mantra of appealing to the youth, you know? Well, anyway, let's let's go on. Matt Hewitt will enjoy it. I was going to say, I mean, literally the only two people who are going to be interested (laughs) in listening to this. One of them is on the podcast with you. And the other one is Matt, who would listen to the podcast if it was white noise. So anyway, (laughs) that's That's it. It
2: has has been several times. But anyway, we move we move on. OK, so at the moment, well, let's talk about the history of the ranking list. It's, initially, there was only one tournament that counted, the World Championship. Mm. They backdated it sort of the last three years. A circuit grew up in the 1980s. Gods of snooker dealt with all that. And they came up with a system, and it was a very simple system. You got to uh, basically, it was like a point around. So you won the tournament, you got six points, runner up five, semis four, et cetera. World Championship wasn't quite double, but it was 10 points to the winner. And, you know, reflecting its status, there were merit points. And we won't go into all that right now. But it was a very simple system. It changed in the 90s. The, the great story was that John Spencer worked out the, the tariffs on the back of a cigarette cigarette packet. I suspect it wasn't a cigarette packet. It was probably just a notepad. But he was the chairman. He came up probably with a, a
1: cigar new, box, maybe.
2: Yeah, he came up with a new system. The points sort of exploded. It went into thousands of points, and eventually we end up with the money list, which we now have under the Barry Hearn era, um, which I suppose has ended now. Barry's uh, no longer chairman. But he, his idea is it should be easy to understand, and the easiest way for it, to be understood is that the the prize money for that tournament is counts to the ranking points. So it's a straight swap. That's how much money you've earned. That's how many ranking points you have. It seems to me though, that the money list and players do say this, it makes first prizes count a little bit too much. Um, now, there's obviously achievement in winning a tournament, a real achievement, which should be reflected in the rankings, but I'm not sure you should effectively get a year in the top 16 off the back of one victory, you know, if, you, if you're if you not sort of, you know, you get that big £150,000 maybe, and that case basically gets you in. I'm not a big fan of just rewarding consistency, you know, for quarterfinals, but it's a two-year system, and it seems to me a little bit too top-heavy. So what is the solution? Well, I think you should look like they do in tennis, ban-, ban the event so there's different values to the tournaments okay at first i thought okay why not like the film review uh, system so a five-star tournament would be the world championship four stars the uk so on but then i thought hang on we already have a system in snooker that people can understand the colors of the balls okay everyone knows now stick with this everyone knows that the black is worth the most okay so if you have six bands of tournaments the black band would be the world championship okay the pink band any event with a first prize over, or at least 200,000. So the UK Championship, China Open. Blue, events with £150,000 first prize, Tour Championship, some of the other events in China, hopefully, which will come back. Brown, £100,000 top prize, World Grand Prix, Players' Championship, the new Turkish Masters. Green, £70,000 first prize, Home Nations, German and European Masters, yellow, all the rest, Gibraltar, Shootout, etc. Now, of course, the problem with this is it may mean that the first prizes are artificially boosted to get into a certain band um so maybe there should be a rule about the first price has to be a certain percentage of the total price fund promoters you could argue also be motivated to up the prize fund so for example the promoter of the gibraltar open if he wants to to climb into another band puts more money into the tournament in terms of ranking points how are they distributed <clears throat> i haven't worked out every round because i'm not a complete lunatic but In terms of first prizes, so let's say, for example, if you win the World Championship, you get 100,000 ranking points, okay? because it's the most important tournament. And then for the rest of them, it's 10 10, 10 times 10,000 for the value of the ball. So it would be 60,000 if you won a pink event, 50,000 if you won a blue event, and so on and so on, down to 20,000 for the yellow event. I think it would make make the uh, the public understand the difference between ranking tournaments because at the moment, you look on the all-time ranking event winner's list, they just counted all the same. You know, winning the shootout on that list is equal to winning the World Championship. We know it isn't, but maybe if it was more clearly defined, so you go to a tournament, oh, this is a a blue tournament. This is, you know, prestigious, not quite pink or black, but higher up than the others. It would just make the the events uh, sort of fall into place a bit more. And... Yeah, that's my idea. And also, and this this does sound like I'm a lunatic, but I had, I had an idea that... Well, because made... the rest of it didn't. Oh, hang on, hang on. Yeah. Right, I had an idea you could effectively give each player a joker, okay? Oh so for one tournament a year, okay, if you play your joker, you, you earn double the points in that tournament, okay? Now, the problem with that, of course, is most people might leave it to the World Championship because that's the highest points, but it might create a bit of kind of interest. When's he going to play joker? Is it going to be, you know... Well, general, well, it will it be the Scottish Open?
1: Yeah, I've got to interject there though. I mean, that gives rise to potentially the greatest headline of all time, where Mark Selby decides to do it, then it's <laughs> Jester plays the Joker. Well, you see, this is it. it. It would create, it would create interest. It would create
2: headlines such as that.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and only so,
2: once, though. And that's the thing. You, you can only use that once a year. Well, that's yeah. a bit better than nothing. So that's effectively it. I won't, I won't go on about it more. But that's my idea is effectively to ban the tournament. So rather than just every tournament. You know, it's a ranking event and, OK, that you know, he gets however much money for it. They're in bands. And, you know, as I say, there's, there's, there's scope for tournaments to improve, to increase in stature, you know, over the years and more prize money. Yeah, that's my idea, basically.
1: Maybe uh, the players could wear um, waistcoats and trousers that match the colour of the tournament. So you well, could it's, have... It's, it's Romford Rap video yeah, well, all was again. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you could have for, you know, tournaments on the second level the players could wear uh, the pink waistcoats and trousers and uh, they could, well, I'm sure that they could find the leftovers from the Romford Rap shoot. Although I'm not sure how, how, what state they'd be in after 35 years. Um, like setting aside all the naming of the colors and that, I mean, I'm, I'm broadly in agreement and I, I actually can't see why it isn't like this because, okay, if you want to have the rankings based on prize money, that the more money a tournament has, the more it counts for in the rankings, that's fine. But you can do that without it being one pound equals one point. You could have like the scenario you're putting there, where a certain amount of prize money means you're in the the highest band, and another level of money means the second highest band. But it, it, the, the way it's been in recent years, there has been such a move towards having really big first prizes, and and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that, and I understand that it's it's headline grabbing first prizes and it's rewarding excellence. But that doesn't necessarily then have to translate into the rankings. And you, you have a scenario where in some tournaments, I think winning the tournament counts for something like 10 times as much as yeah. getting to the semi-final. Now, well, under we, the system you were talking about, uh, the old one, which I think worked perfectly well, you had six points for winning the tournament and four for getting to the semifinals. So basically, for getting to the semis, you got two-thirds of the points that you got for winning the tournament. And I think that's a lot closer to what it should be.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, Stuart Bingham, OK, after he won the World Championship, and we love Stuart, he's a great guy, great mm-hmm. player, you know, salt of the earth, absolutely, a diamond player. But he had an opportunity to get to number one, and obviously it was mainly off the back of winning that World Championship. And I don't think, in all seriousness, anyone could have argued that over the two-year period he was the number one player. But that World Championship in particular skews it. But a lot of the other events do as well. Jack Nizowski has definitely been one of the best 16 players in the last two years. Mm. Okay. But he only just got in the top 16 for the world championship, you know, because he has not won a tournament, but there is a certain reward. I think that's needed for consistency. And I do think, okay. I'll, you know, we didn't have to be the color balls, but I do think, you know, if, if a bit like the ATP, you understand an ATP 500 event is a bit more prestigious than a 250 event. Okay. The public, I think would understand that now a lot of the public probably don't care. They just want to watch snooker, which is absolutely fine. I have no problem with that. But I think this might be a slightly fairer system um,
1: than the current one. I know a lot of the players agree. Joe Perry, in particular, I've had a very in-depth discussion with this about, and uh, he certainly w- would agree broadly with what you're saying. And Joe has a you know a certain amount of influence now. He's emerging as one of the game's sort of elder statesmen and um, is someone who would be listened to. So look, maybe now would be the time to discuss it because obviously, as you say, there's been a change of, uh, of, of chairman might be the time to look at it. I, I do think at the moment it's, it's a bit all over the place. And sometimes you look at players' rankings and you think, well, how is he that high and how is he that low? And you're right about Jack, that he would be higher if he had just actually won a tournament. But also, I think a lot of the points he got came in Home Nations events, which don't count for as much as, the, the, well, the gr- events. The Green Band, yeah. The, the Green Band, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dennis Tyler. Yeah, indeed. Well, of course, the Welsh Open last season was literally a brown tournament because Jordan won it. But um, anyway, yeah, look, I'm broadly in agreement with you. But also, I agree with the other point you're making. I I think most of the general public don't really pay that much attention to us. I mean, it's basically you, me, Matt Hewitt, Chris Downer and a few people of our ilk. And thankfully for humanity, there aren't many people of our ilk. No, but it's
2: not, it's not. just about the public, though. It's actually the players are the important people here because they want, you know, want a system that more
1: fairly reflects their, no. performance,
2: their performances.
1: No, they don't. What players want, Dave, they want a system that they're ranked high in. They don't care whether it's fair or not. Oh no, but, I don't. Yeah, no, no, really I know. Fine. I'm, am joking. Joke. I'm joking a little bit. I'm, jo- I'm joking a bit, but. Uh... But I mean, you do have to um, look at it also and say players will always find fault with whatever the system is. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it might help the players. I, I don't think they don't understand the system. I think they do. They do understand the way it is. But also the thing is, it's a little bit arbitrary, isn't it? Because it used to be, as you say, six, five, four, three, two, one. So I mean, obviously that's just very straightforward. So you know, the division of points between rounds, it's not you know an equal number of it's not well, an no. equal difference, so it's a little bit arbitrary in that way as well.
2: Well, I still don't know how John Spencer, how that system actually worked, but anyway, that's uh, Well, listen, that's my idea. If anyone's got any, any thoughts, you can contact us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, but we are now going to move to uh, the emails, because there are quite a few come in. Now, you'll remember our friend Stratford Walden, who was yeah. going through the back issues, not back issues, back, back podcasts, whatever, whatever the phrase is, uh, to see how many times Fergal O'Brien was mentioned. Well, he's got in contact again, it's fair to say Stratford, and he, he's Australian, he's a big Neil Robertson fan, uh, which uh, will be revealed here. He said, um, hats off to Mike McQuillan, who downloaded the first 119 episodes and listened to all of them in nine days. Paint fumes will do that sort of thing to you. Uh, he said, I've just listened uh, to episodes 157, 158, some comments from those. Firstly, a suggestion to Michael to modernise his phrase, I tried to avoid, avoid cliches like the plague. Perhaps I try to avoid cliches like COVID-19. Well... Topical, if nothing
1: Contemporary, else. Contemporary,
2: yeah. Secondly, he said, "I, this is me now, said we have an email from Strafford Walton, and you said, is that a person or a place? Mm. Uh, my initial reaction was to be offended, but actually it's a fair question. There is a town in the US of that name, though my family hail from the UK where that now came from. I'm quick to say I'm a proud Aussie. A segue to Neil Robertson. He's proud of things like first 200 centuries in a season and winning a ranking tournament every year for the last 20. Not quite what happened actually, though. No. He's won a tournament Every year since 2006, not, mm. not all ranking events, but anyway, it's a great uh, achievement. So the stat I saw tweeted recently for the season just gone, he had a rate of 18% of centuries per 100 frames, the highest of all the players on the tour. As Michael says, paraphrasing a bit, there's a bit too much importance put on centuries. What Neil wouldn't give for a few, well, play 70s in the World Championship instead of tons when the match is over. Having said that, early in a match, tons and clearances must send a message to your opponent: you miss you'll be sitting in the chair for the next frame. So here's a proposal for a rule change. Players earn credit points, you see, that is all about points oh now, for centuries during the season and can spend those credits in subsequent matches when they need snookers. One century equals one point, point. they can call on these credits at any stage when in, a, when in a snooker to the maximum amount of snooker points needed. And just to complicate things, yeah, because they weren't complicated enough, were they? Uh, the opponent can spend any credits they have to counter the use of those credits. A bit like just say no card in some modern Monopoly editions. Can't possibly go wrong with that. Of course, it's coincidental. Neil would gain some advantage in the World Cup. Well, that's all lunacy, obviously, as uh, Stafford. No offence, but, yeah. uh, but but the century rates thing is interesting. And in fact, uh, well, it is a secret, but I'm going to reveal it. Neil actually sent this to me himself, so he clearly has looked at it. Um, I still think most centuries um, is the metric, though, because there's something about actually just showing up. Listen, you can play one one match a season, in theory, lose four three, make three centuries. You'll probably be top of that uh, that list, but you know, you're not the leading century breakmaker Judd trump made the most of all, all season and that consistency and that doing it match after match tournament after tournament is what's so impressive actually the fact you can stay that sharp uh, to me anyway uh now he continues um we'll just gloss over the rest of that and we'll come to ah uh, yes the fergal stuff because that's what we're really here for oh yeah now he's been through a hell of a lot of episodes uh yes what did he say here Yes, yeah, so he's listened now to up to episode 92. Okay, oh, uh, this sorry. is for those who are wondering what I'm talking about. Strafford has gone through the back catalogue that's what that's the phrase I was looking for to see how many times Fergal O'Brien was mentioned. Now, we can't go possibly go through all this, but he's, these are the ones where he was mentioned. Okay, he was mentioned in episode 16 something about someone talking to Fergal on the plane back. Uh, episode 18, apparently, episode 19. Am I reading this right? No, (laughs) I'm not. But he's actually just picking out his highlights of the podcast. So this is nothing to do with further. He said, uh, episode 18, apparently I used the phrase, people said this podcast wouldn't last. Well, there we are. Uh, Michael Holt, episode 19, he said his other career option would be in business. He'd like to be the next Donald Trump. I don't don't think Michael would think that now. Uh, Phil Yates on episode 21 said he'd be very surprised if Neil Robertson didn't win another world title. Well, I think we all were at that point. Fergal was mentioned in episode 31 talking about his defeat to Paul Hunter in the Masters and so on and so on. But basically, it comes down to this. okay, these are the episodes he's been mentioned in. Okay, Mm -hmm. episode 1, 4, 9, 13, 16, 31, 49, 52, 59, 61, 82, 83, 92. So 13 out of the 92. But of course, as I said last week, (laughs) now we're doing now we're tracking this. He's going to be mentioned in every one of them, isn't he? Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Anyway, anyway, thank you, Straffer, for that. Now we continue. Well, can, can, just before we continue, yeah. while you were going through all that, I was taking the opportunity to uh, find out the players Clive did beat as a professional. Ah. Now, I did, and here's a sentence I never thought I'd say in my whole life. We did Bernard Bennett a disservice. Actually, I did him a disservice because they did <laughs> That's meet tw- in a quali- two, two, two weeks running, it out. Yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, well, no, last week I did his hometown a disservice. Yeah. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, they did meet in a World Championship qualifier. It finished 10 4. Looking at the frame scores, it looks like absolute filth. Not a 50 break between them in a best of 19. So, but speaking of doing a disservice, uh, Pot Black magazine that we both actually wrote for over the years, long since gone, they, um, I remember when Clive lost his pro ticket in 1988, they wrote, Everton can have no complaints having won only five matches in seven years as a pro. Well, that was obviously a little dig they were making at him because he was the opposition. Well, he was done a disservice because it turns out that in his seven years as a pro, Clive won six matches. So, oh, Clive,
2: yeah. Clive, just before he continues, just to put this into context, Clive's game was billiards. He was a very good billiards yeah. player. Yeah. Yeah. Got to world world quarter quarterfinals and all sorts. By the time he turned pro as a snooker player, he was way past his best because he yeah. couldn't. He basically couldn't turn pro before that. So we're talking early eighties. I mean, Clive would have been in his forties then. So yeah. he was never going to pull up too many trees. Just loved playing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Indeed. Um. Well, actually, in the world amateur billiards, I think he got to the semi-finals twice and. At that time, the Amateur Billiards Championship was perhaps even of a higher standard than the pro one because there wasn't much to turn pro for. Anyway, the players Clive beat as a pro, Matt Gibson, Kingsley Kennerly, um, Paddy Morgan. Now, that was a best of three in the International Masters. You might say it was the WST Pro Series of his day. Um, He beat Pat Houlihan. He beat Patsy Fagan in the Professional Players Tournament. Now, that was only a few years after Patsy had won the UK. And we know how George enjoys a good Patsy Fagan mention, so we'll get him in there. And Clive actually made breaks of 62 and 58 in that match. So that was decent enough. The last match he won, indeed, the only match he won in his last three seasons on the circuit, was uh, a clash of the BBC commentators against Jim Meadowcroft. So there we go. But Bernard Bennett is not on that list because when they did play, Bernard won by 10 frames to four.
2: Speaking of billiards, Clive, he told me a story. He did a he did a billiards exhibition with Eddie Charlton. I mean, you can imagine tickets wow. must have flown off the shelves for that. Yeah. And the total fee was 300 pounds, but Eddie took 250. So Clive only got 50 quid. And, you know, he, 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 the exhibition sort of went along. And Eddie, you know, I mean, he was a, a legend, but maybe not necessarily an entertainer in the way we understand, you know, the, the use of that word. And it was sort of grinding on and grinding on and, and going on a little bit long for some tastes. Um, and eventually there was sort of a pause, he pl- Eddie had played whatever shot he played, there was a pause and the, the promoter shouted from the sidelines, is that it Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that it? Hope, hoping it was and uh, I think Eddie saw that maybe it was time to, to pocket mm-hmm. his 250 quid anyway, none of this is getting us anywhere um, Andrew Cummerford writes what, what does he write? Oh, yes. so I refer you to episode 142 and your discussion slope, uh, stroke dismissal BBC Science correspondent, Richard Westcott's alternate format suggestion, i.e. increasing the value of the black to eight or nine points. I agree with you, for the most part, the frame format works fine, and I would never suggest changing it for the major events, brackets, triple crown. However, with so many events in the calendar today, surely there's room for some more variety. I would guess even the players would welcome a curveball every now and again, rather than the same general event and frame format week after week after week. An alternate suggestion comes to mind. A tournament we played with some or... Or all of the frames played with the colours spotted in reverse order, i.e. the black is what is on um, traditionally the yellow spot, the pink on the green spot, the blue on the brown spot, etc. This would take the players out of their comfort zone a little and force them to really think about points required. To borrow an expression often used when assessing golf courses, it would add an element of risk-reward to the game by tempting the players to take on more challenging positional shots to get on the high-value colours. Well, hang on make... a minute! Hang on, yeah. sorry,
1: hang on. That, that makes no sense at all because that wouldn't be changed in any way. Because you have that in the game now, so instead of playing to get on the black, you'd just be playing to get on the yellow. So it wouldn't actually increase well, the no, well, elements he, of the game at all.
2: Well, he's saying no. He's saying the opposite. He's saying it would force you to play down to bulk in the bet, top of the reds. Anyway, oh, I see. He... Sorry, yeah. yes,
1: I, I see what yeah. you mean. So, so the black would still be worth seven. Yes, would, yeah. Go, yeah. Oh, OK, OK, sorry, OK, I get it now. Yeah.
2: He said, uh, perhaps it would make for closer and more tense frames. It would be more difficult to get over the line in one visit. It would throw in maybe a higher-than-normal high-break price for added drama. While I consider myself a traditionalist, and I said a little variety once or twice a season would work. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. is from Dublin. Um, now, I, I, I think I often come across on here as just being against everything. I'm completely against this. I'll tell you why, Andrew. It's very simple, OK? When we get crowds back... Say you did this at the Northern Ireland Open, okay people there in Belfast, this is their one chance a year to watch a snooker tournament. Do they really want to watch this this format i don 't think so. I think they want to watch the game as as they 've always seen it, and also, I do genuinely think if you start changing things too much, you know you don't sort of know where you 're going, and before you know it, you know chaos could reign. so I have to say it 's an interesting idea i don 't want to see it personally,
1: yeah, it has echoes of power snooker for me. Mm. You know, so I see this is the thing, I never understand this. You you don't get this in other sports. It seems every time you go to a snooker tournament, people sit around saying how they want to change the game. You know, it's true. You know, the the, the guy who wanted to have two cue balls, Uh, you mentioned that in commentary during the World Championship. I mean, I've never been to a football match where people said, well, let's have two balls on the pitch or, you know, let's make the goals a different shape. Mm. You know, and and actually, football is a sport which is probably more in need of change. So I've never really understood this in snooker, why people are always. you know, so fascinated with trying to change something that they clearly like very much
2: to well, maybe be interested it's, enough. Maybe it's to give us something to talk about on a podcast. Fair anyway, enough.
1: Yeah. Steve, speaking of which, Stephen Forbes,
2: he says, I have, a, I have a professional interest in the interplay between workplace culture, governance, leadership, and related themes. Hence why I was keen to revisit a topic raised in episode 151 from the 3rd of April this year. In said episode You had briefly alluded to possible differences in Matchroom and WST's ethos, but felt it was a topic for a quieter time. Would this be an opportune time to expand on your views? And as a supplementary question, does the departure of Barry Hearn, which happened after episode 151, have any impact on those differences in your view? Thank you, as always, for the increasingly niche and often thought-provoking themes discussed. They give my YouTube search history a rather cultured, if somewhat curious, (laughs) snapshot into the topics that pique one's interest. There needs to be a thesis written on the behavioural and impacts of the Snooker Scene Podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Well, actually, I noticed I didn't watch it because I, I went to the cinema, but this afternoon um, there was an, the episode of Ever Decreasing Circles where he, he played Snooker actually was on. Richard oh, Bryant. We were talking Richard about Bryas, this. Yeah, it, yeah, on today. Yeah, probably on tomorrow again. I mean, the, the show. showing the ITV show View to
1: a Kill four times this week, so I'll that, tell you something about. All right, I was going to say that's a reduction from the from the yeah. from most weeks. But I've got to ask you this: this is massive. Mm. This, this is the first time in well over a year that I've spoken to someone who's just been to the cinema. So what on oh. earth did you go to see? What's even showing these days? Well, no,
2: it's all come back. Sydney again. We're not really here to discuss this, but Sydney World yeah. in Birmingham is sort of cranked up again. I went to see Nomadland, which was the oh, okay. Moscow yeah. the film, and it yeah. was ab- absolutely brilliant. And and but I think. I think I would have enjoyed it anyway, but just going back actually um, was—it was just nice to see a film on the big screen. It's not the same when you watch at home because you know you're on your phone, and yeah, you're distracted. Yeah, yeah. When you go to the cinema, you know you kind of got to sit there and, and absorb the film, and I did, and it was great. And uh, well, I say that actually—it <laughs> didn't start on time because there was a problem with the projector. I mean, but I, so it was half an hour late. But I thought, well, I've waited six months, so I can wait another half an hour. Exactly. Yeah. In, you know, a year ago I would have been really angry, but anyway. But anyway, let's get back to uh, Steven's. Um, question yeah i I did it was a throwaway comment i I went back to listen to what i'd said um i think we'd both been at the championship league you at the championship league pool championship league snooker and we were just sort of saying it's nice to be at a matchroom event because there's a certain feel to them and i suppose what i meant was and it's not it wasn't a big comment really i just think that you always feel part of their events they're very the, the staff are very friendly once you get there you're made to feel as important as anyone else at the tournament Um, And I think the reason for that is that they are an independent promotional group. You know, they've been cheerleading, you know, quite niche sports. I'm talking about snooker, but, you know, they've done fishing and poker and all sorts of things, temping bowling, and they throw absolutely everything into that. Now, I'm not saying World Snooker Tour don't either, but they are seen as a governing body. They sort of behave like a governing body. And so their events may be a little more formal, I suppose. But then it's not to say they're not enjoyable. I just think there's a slight difference. There's a little. Let's be honest, there's a bit of competition between the two sides. They're all part of the same organization. But that's good because it means if one does something that the other one likes, they think, OK, how can we top that? That's good, I think. Um, they're both doing a good job. It's just to, me personally going to the events. is just a slightly different feel to the matchroom ones than the World
1: Snooker Tour ones. It's not to say I don't enjoy both, though. The big difference between the two, I would say, is you go to a World Snooker event, and they sit and slag off match room behind their back, and you're not <laughs> along in agreement. And then you go to a match room event, and they say all the thing, same things, slagging off world snooker, and again you're not along in agreement with all of them. No, I don't really mean that, but uh, yeah, no, it, it is good. There is a little bit of competition between them, but I, I think it's quite sort of healthy competition. And um, you know, if it helps to raise the standards of everything all round, which I think it does, then then it's all good fun and, and, and all all for the good of the game. Yeah, and then- I think as well, just also, I think one other thing that's a bit different is with World Snooker Tour, they're obviously only doing snooker, mm-hmm. um, and with Matchroom, they're involved in so many other sports throughout the year, so they just bring sort of elements of what they've learned from promoting events in other sports to it, and, and also, they're not quite in that week-in, week-out grind of of World Snooker Tour, which I'm not saying is a good or a bad thing for either side, it just means a slightly different approach, and just a slightly different way of, of chatting behind the scenes. But listen, a world snooker event or a matchroom event is, is always a wonderful thing to, uh, to be a part of in, in any way.
2: Yeah, and I don't think anything will change with Barry's uh, departure because he'll still, mm. still be around and he's he's sort of it, like it's his ethos. He built, you know, match room and, and he's, he's, that that sort of attitude has, has come into Will Snooker. What you failed to mention, of course, is when we stopped recording the podcast, we slag both sides off.
1: So. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. yeah.
2: And plenty plenty of others besides. Clive Stringer writes, um <clears throat> said, I'm interested to hear you wouldn't be averse to some tinkering with the rules regarding playing on at Snooker's required stage. Well, that's you more than me. But anyway, he says My solution would be to give the player, say, three chances to extract foul points. If they're successful, the opportunity is reset to zero and they get another three chances. If they're unsuccessful, then that's simply frame over. So I love the podcast. I've listened since the outset and always look forward to listening to it. My suspicion, Clive, is I don't think there'll be any... People talk about this, but when push comes to shove, it's a bit like the mistral. When the players are asked, they're given various options on on changing it or or alternatives, they stuck with what they knew. And I suspect this will be the same... It can be tiresome, I know, the playing on, but I don't think it's quite at a, at a level where it's sort of ruining tournaments. I don't think you could argue that. Mm. There's the, the odd match where you just think, oh, get on with it, but so many players. I mean, players get criticised, actually, sometimes by commentators for not playing on. You know, you need two sneakers. Yeah, why, yeah. like, why aren't you playing on sort of thing? So in a way, you can't win. I suspect it won't
1: change, though. It's funny uh, how I sort of contradicted myself in a way. Earlier on, I was saying, why are people always talking about changing the game? And yet last week, or whenever it was we were talking about it, I was maybe advocating making the change. (laughs) Funny, all all this just reminds me of a conversation with Steve Davis, who was president of the Snooker Writers Association. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was just just a figurehead thing. And he took very seriously. And Raleigh took very seriously. I remember him saying when we were all going in to have our annual meeting, he said, uh, well, he did mean the first part of what he said. He said, uh, if, if there's anything that you want me to raise, you know, at a higher level, then do let me know, which was good of him to say that. But then, of course, he had to follow up with uh, with, a, with a sort of a put down quip. um he said, uh, "I'll probably start off with you asking for better food in the press room, and end up with the misrule rule being changed." But, uh,
2: well, you, yeah. well he, he used to call us the scum, so that's how, that's what, that's how uh, he, he still. What do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah. Used to? What do you mean? That's used how seriously, to? he took his role as president. Anyway, yeah. Conor, Connor Langan, another listener from Ireland. We seem to have a lot of listeners uh, in the Republic of Ireland, which is uh, which is great. Yeah. Um, so Said, "I love the podcast, lads. Keep it up." Quick question. I remember watching the Moscone Cup when I was younger. Lately, watching the YouTube clips and Alex Higgins, Jimmy White, Ronnie O'Sullivan all featured heavily for Europe. However, now I don't see any snooker players playing pool or the Moscone Cup. Any thoughts or reasons for that? Well, you're the pool man, but my reading of this is that, um, in the early days it was a bit of a publicity stunt maybe to, to promote those events. Now they don't need them because the you know the standard of the players, particularly from Europe, snooker player couldn't get in the
1: team. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's that's exactly it. It started out really. When you think about it, when the Moscone Cup started over 25 years ago, eight ball was was, you know, was king as far as pool was concerned on this side of the Atlantic. So this tournament was was brought in as a way of promoting nine ball to the British public, introducing it really to the British public for the first time. And the Ryder Cup had just become a sky event um, around that time. So I think maybe that was where the idea came from. They said, well, why not have a, a, a pool event along the lines of the Ryder Cup? So. Obviously, people weren't going to be familiar with the top pool players, so it was a mix of big names in pool, and as you say, some of the top snooker players. Steve Davis, of course, went on to become one of the best pool players in the world, so he was still playing in it when it had moved on from that, but it is all a much more serious thing now. There's a qualifying system, you've got wild cards, captains and vice-captains, and the one thing that I would really say about it, it's incredible how fit the players are. Now, not all of them, I mean, it's one or two, you know, are still very old school, but when I arrived at the Championship League pool back in March, Alban Ocean, former world champion, um, was doing laps around the outside <laughs> of Stadium MK. And his sister was also playing in the event. She's a very good player herself. I mean, she's incredibly fit as well. Of course, Alban needed to, to do all that running because he ended up playing 52 matches that week to win the tournament, something that can only happen in Championship League. But yeah, I mean, that would be the reason that they, they were brought in at first. But uh, what it really surprises me. I was only thinking about this recently, that more lower ranked snooker players don't try to play in the pool events because apart from anything else you know it's a very good way to to boost their earnings if they're not making as much as they might hope from the snooker and yeah it's a bit of a different game and a bit of an adjustment but i mean all all the basic skills if you're good enough to be a very good snooker player uh, good enough to be on the tour then you you know you're going to prosper at pool as well so with more and more pool events all the time now uh, being promoted again by Matchroom, largely. I think we might see, actually, a bit more of that in some of the lower-ranked snooker players trying their hand at it.
2: And, of course, uh, tonight... Well, there's no point saying this now, because the be over, mm. probably... But it's the Whirlpool Masters in Gibraltar. It's the last... Uh, It'll be the yeah. final. But uh, anyway, I'm sure people are aware of that anyway. Uh, David Burney, our friend in Canada, he said... Mm. You've been doing wonderful work on the podcast. Do they ever give you a break? Well, it's up to us, I suppose. But uh, he says, anyway, I was wondering if either of you two have explored the SQ snooker app. It seems like an interesting idea and we want the skinny on it all. We can always rely on Dave and Michael to give it to us straight. Thanks again. Looking forward to tipping a pint at the Worlds next year as I've got my tickets. and I'm ready to represent Canada over there. Well, that'd be brilliant if we can all be at the Crucible, it'd be nice mm-hmm. to have a little podcast get-together, wouldn't it? Um, in terms of well, the... I,
1: I just during the World Championship, I texted Alan McManus just to yeah, congratulate Mon's retirement, and I was saying, can't believe we're not all in The Graduate having to drink. And he said, yeah, it's not the same here without all the other anoraks.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, uh, quite, quite, quite right, and there's plenty of them. The SQ app, it's a, essentially a, a handicapping um, system, mm. and, it, and it's the brainchild of Wayne Griffiths, who is a coach. She's also the son of the great Terry Griffiths. Wayne is actually going to be on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks, hopefully. I'll I'll be speaking to him about this. So uh, if you can gird your loins until then, we will have Wayne uh, to speak to, and he can tell us all about it and explain all about it. Uh, Who else have we got here? Um, Let's go to Colin Johnston. He says, Ahoy, ahoy, from a snooker enthusiast since the early, (laughs) since the early eighties and all the way through since. Ahoy, ahoy. Okay. The phrase he uses there, uh, Mr. Burns in the Simpsons always answers the phone that way, because that was the way people used to answer the phone before they said hello, because hello was a word. A, a, hello was a word that was invented. It was a, there was a competition. What word should we use to answer the telephone? And the word hello was the word they used. He says, "I'm keen to." Yeah, it's something like that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he might not be totally accurate, but it's something like that. I think the word probably existed already, but that was, the, but that was the word that was kind of commonly, anyway. Uh, He says, I'm keen to get your views on the topic of what makes an exciting snooker match. I know that everyone has their own preference, and I can and have appreciated every aspect of a game over the last 40 years. I know it's more the way of the modern game, but I at times struggle when a match is highly praised as being a really good game of snooker, when each frame is being one at one visit, one frame after the next in large breaks, and therefore no frame is getting down to the colours. I can appreciate that, but for me, a good match has to have at least some frames that get to the colours and that's only where the real drama and excitement appears. Throw in a frame in a match where black ends up over a corner pocket with plenty of reds left and a gripping 20 minute collection of glancing safety shots in shoes till the black finally disappears. And then you have a really great eventful match. Maybe not for all, but there's only so many large breaks and single visit frames you can watch in a match these days. The lack of drama this results in, to me, doesn't equal a great match as so often described as such by the pundits. Well, Colin, I understand what you mean. I mean... I think you have to appreciate the quality on show. If there are centuries in every frame, it's interesting that champion, of champions final between Neil Robertson and Judd Trump season before last now, Mm. that actually had a lot of big breaks. I think it was eight centuries, but also it had a couple of frames at the end, one after snookers were needed. So it did have that other side. Yeah. We all, we all get gripped by sort of battles on the colors. I don't think you want every frame though, to be a scrap on the colors. I think you want to mix. I think exactly what you've said. You want to mix big breaks, you know, good safety, drama, mistakes, of course, flukes, or everything, basically, that you see,
1: if you can get all of that into one match, then you've got a great match. I think, for me, the greatest match, the match I got the most enjoyment out of, I've always said this, was the World Final of 2018. And I think, particularly, it was that final session. And what I remember, actually, I know Mark won it in the end, but those clearances that John Higgins made, I mean, there's nothing for me quite like that, you know, even more than a century or a maximum. I love seeing that when a player is right up against it, he's come within a ball or two of losing the frame, And then he pulls out a magnificent clearance, knowing at every time if he misses, that's probably going to cost him the frame. But it's all a matter of personal taste, isn't it? And I always find it funny when people say, well, this frame is one for the purists. And what they mean is this is a really, really bad frame, as if purists want to see really scrappy frames that aren't entertaining. I mean, for me, I I love the big breaks. You know, I I can just watch century breaks and big clearances forever, really. And I'm a bit of the Stephen Hendry mold, not in terms of my (laughs) ability. Almost success in the game. But just, I mean, you, you can't imagine Stephen sitting down and thinking, oh, this is, a, this is a great old tactical battle here. This is fantastic. I'm very much of that, Ilk. I'm, I'm, I, love, I love the big breaks. But a little bit of a mix with the other side of the game as well. So I think that's what you need. You know, I remember Nick Hornby writing in Fever Pitch about this, uh, about a match that he went to. He said that he had always had this idea in his head about what the perfect football match would be for him. And he listed off all the elements. And then he said... There had literally only been one football match in his whole life that had contained all of those elements. So I suppose it's a bit like that for everyone. You, you can ask everyone, you know, what five things would make the perfect snooker match for you. And, yeah, you know, generally speaking, most of us would probably only see that a couple of times in our whole life. So it's, it's just all a matter of taste, isn't
2: it? Yeah, variety, I think, is, is the thing, isn't it? Let's do one yeah. final one final email from Michael Hager. He writes... I recently sent my first email to your podcast. I'm keen to follow it quickly with my second, a bit like winning your first ranking event at the Welsh <laughs> Open and then following it up with success in China. I just wanted to talk about my early snooker memories and what got me interested in the game as a young boy and where perhaps WST are currently missing a trick. My first memory is the blue, which Willie Thor missed while leading Steve Davis 13-8 in the 1985 UK final, looking to go 14-8 up. I remember because of my, because my dad shouting you stupid man when he missed purely <laughs> because he wasn't a fan of Steve Davis's 1980s domination of the game. My second memory of the game is the final of the 1986 Mercantile Credit Classic between Jimmy White and Cliff Thorburn. The match went to a deciding frame. Jimmy needed a snooker with just pink and black left, which he duly got, potted a long pink and then the final black. Jimmy celebrated, the crowd was cheering. From that moment, I was a Jimmy White fan, unaware of the heartache that this would cause me of the coming years. The final session of that best of 25 frames final was played over Sunday afternoon, so I would have seen those final exciting scenes around tea time. If the final session had been in the evening, there's a nine-year-old boy, I would have been in bed, and therefore would have missed the thrilling climax, and my interest in snooker may never have been ignited. So that's my point, really. Should WST look to have a number of finals played to a conclusion during an afternoon session to appeal to a younger, impressionable audience, or perhaps reverse an apparent decline of interest in snooker? Michael, I think that's a very good point. The problem they've got, of course, is they have to adhere to what the television companies want. And overwhelmingly, the television companies will want a big audience in the evening. So they want an evening climax. Um, In those days, we've sort of said before, and it was kind of touched on in Gods of Snooker, there wasn't much live football, and certainly not like it is Mm. now, on Sunday afternoon. So that slot was kind of free. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember those ITV finals. They were absolutely huge occasions. And it was definitely an opportunity for a younger audience to... Get into Stuka. Of course, what's hap- what's happened recently on the BBC is, and it's changed slightly now. They've got that BBC Four program in the evening, that live coverage. But for years, their main live coverage was in the afternoon. So at the Masters, for example, Ronnie O'Sullivan or Judd Trump, the real crowd pleasers, would play in the afternoon. But of course, in the week and on a weekday, kids would be at school. So actually, it-, it worked against the sort of argument that we should play in the afternoon. Now, what you're saying is the finals should finish in the afternoon. I think that's unlikely to happen unless TV wants it. If TV wanted it, will. If they don't, it won't. And I suspect they probably don't. But it's a very valid point, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, if you look at that mercantile footage online, because um, it is there somewhere. And t- the live coverage, I think it went on to about 6.30 or something. It was a long old afternoon. I mean, Cliff was involved after all. And as we say, it did go to the, to the last frame. But I think uh, Dickie Davies comes on at the end and says, and uh, we'll have highlights of the final tonight at 10 o'clock or something like that. So after showing it live, they still had another program after that. Even if you hadn't seen it in the afternoon, just shows you uh, how much room they were giving to it at the time. But Stuart Weir, who was the press officer of um, WPBSA, as it was at the time, and was involved in the game in all sorts of ways over the years. I remember him saying, um, 1996, the British Open final, I think you referred to it in one of the recent episodes, uh, Nigel Bond and John Higgins. Now, Sky Sports at that time only had, I think, two channels. And they were showing a big football match that night. I think it was uh, Blackburn against Newcastle. So the British Open final was played in a morning session and an afternoon session. So the afternoon session started at three. It was all over by six. Wonderful finish. And I remember Stuart saying we got more press and media coverage for that than we did for anything else in the whole time that he was in that role. And it was because of the early finish. And I'm sure, you know, as you say, I mean, a lot of younger people who might not have been able to watch it were able to watch it. So I think it would be good for the reasons that were outlined. But I also agree with what you're saying, that the television companies, actually, at the moment, they're moving back towards having it a bit later. I mean, they want as much snooker on after nine o'clock as they they can possibly get. So uh, it's probably not likely to happen anytime soon. (laughs)
2: No, and certainly on commercial channels, you know, their the big advertising revenue comes in the evening. So, I mean, the, the, these practicalities, it's not actually, I don't think, World Snooker Tour's fault, any of that. I just think it's, it's the realities. You know, the TV companies are funding the, the circuit, aren't they? Anyway, well, thanks for all your emails. Sorry if we didn't get to yours, but, we, you know, we'll be back, of course, uh, well, next week. And hopefully next week, we'll have a special guest. I'm not going to say any more on that because we're waiting for the deal to be inked, as it were. But hopefully next week, we will have a very special guest. Um, in the meantime, we are, of course, members of the Sports Social Network, so you can check out their other podcasts, and there's plenty of them there. Whatever sport you're into, there'll be uh, something for you. I say that. There's probably not a Three Cushion billiards podcast. Maybe I should start one. That could be a, another it's a little,
1: long, long summer ahead, you know.
2: Another little niche uh, niche area. Um, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com uh, with anything that you want to discuss. And this will be a good time to do that because, you know, there's nothing happening at the moment. I should say, though, because Q School
1: starts this week. So good luck to everyone in that. Um, some the, of the players in, in that, by the way. I mean, Tony Knowles, Dean Reynolds, yeah. Dave, Dave Finvo is even playing in it. So uh, in a way, you've got to hand it to them for still having the enthusiasm to, uh, to rock up and play at this stage. So we wish them all well.
2: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see who comes through because my theory is what normally happens, which is about 75% at least of people who've been on the tour before, probably people who've just dropped off. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we would like some new names. I mean, Jamie Wilson, who I mentioned earlier, from Southampton uh, or thereabouts, he got on last year, which was great. Um, but it'd be nice to see a few new names. But, you know, there will be people returning. And good luck to all of them. It's a, it's a horrible kind of very tense event, that is. There's a player there, James Silverwood, I wanted to mention, actually. Five years ago, he had a car crash. He was actually in a coma. Mm. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, looked like he might never play Stuga again. He's in it. So good luck to him. All these little stories. Everyone has a story. This is the thing. A lot of these players we may sort of never have heard of. They've all got a story, and what links them? The common theme is they all love snooker, and they're all giving it a go to get on the tour. So good luck to all of them. That's happening in Sheffield. There's no streaming or anything, but uh, I'm sure there'll be some live scoring. Uh, but that's it from us. As I say, we hope to have a guest next week. If not, it'll be <laughs> it'll be we'll more see, of this. Yeah. It'll be more of this. More but, of this uh, nonsense. Yeah. Yes, but uh, do let you know. Do let us know what you think about anything you want to let us know about. And uh, the the ending of these podcasts are always rather rambling, but then again, the rest of it was rather rambling. As we say, as we always do, not ahoy-hoy, but goodbye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.